This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, I am here to in introduce the wonderful Adam Kay. Um, I'm just going to tell you a few wee things that he is far too modest to tell. I'm also going to give you, you know, the rules and regulations. So phones on silent, please. If you feel compelled to tweet about how amazing he is, which I know you will be, try to be not too disruptive to your fellow guests because sometimes lights from phone can distract people. I'll tell you that afterwards, Adam's fabulous book is going to be on sale and he'll be signing just across the way in the um, special signing area. So, if you're anything like me, you probably have a lot of reasons to thank doctors and to be grateful to the NHS. Um, Adam's remarkable memoir, This Is Going to Hurt, is the story of his former incarnation as a junior doctor. And by the end of it, I guarantee you will marvel that anyone comes out alive, most especially <laughs> the overworked young doctors and nurses. Um, I guarantee, it depends on which stories he tells you, but you will laugh, you will cry, and you may become mildly nauseated. <laughs> um, but these are all good things. Let me just tell you about how successful this book has been. Sunday Times number one bestseller for months and months and months and months and months. International number one bestseller. Being adapted as a television series. Voted the Sunday Times Humor Book of the Year. Translated into at least 22 languages and probably more since the last time I checked. Winner of the Books Are My Bag Reader's Choice Award and their nonfiction prize. Winner of the Blackwell's Debut Book of the Year, nominated for the British Book Awards Nonfiction Book of the Year, uh, for the slightly foxed Best First Biography, and as Chortle's Book of the Year and Hearst Magazine's Big Book Award. It was a Book of the Year selection in The Times, The Guardian, The Spectator, The Daily Express, The Sunday Times, and The Mail on Sunday, so guaranteed somebody here reads at least one of those papers. And, best of all, chosen for the new Zoe Ball Book Club. <laughs> so, I'm going away. I want you to give it up for Adam Kay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, wow. Good evening, Edinburgh. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Manners cost nothing. Next hour's going to hurt. Audience is the material. Great. Um, it's a weird one, isn't it? I've, uh, I've been doing the fringe for the last few years, and this is sort of like the fringe with some sort of aging disorder, isn't it? But, uh, <laughs> But here we are. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> win, win them round first. Um, so I was going to... Has anyone read my book? Just, uh, just have, uh, Oh, Christ. Well, it sucks of you, because I'm just going to be reading it out for the next hour. Um, I guess I have to talk around it a bit as well. Um, so I didn't, I didn't expect that uh, I, I would... Uh, ever have a book out, uh, even though I was writing diaries the entire time that I was working as a doctor. Uh, in retrospect, I was writing diaries, I guess, as therapy. Um, at the time, I was sort of thought I was collating this sort of horrendous selection of uh, anecdotes to upset my friends with at dinner parties. Um, 
And they sort of, you know, I, I, and I eventually gave up medicine, so I've ruined the ending for the people who haven't uh, read it. Um, and and I forgot, forgot about them, and they were sat in the bottom of a filing cabinet. And then two years ago, uh, down in England, the junior doctors came under attack from the government. Uh, the doctors were striking uh, because uh, their working conditions were being were changed. And... And that meant uh, patient safety was going to be affected, which means the best interest of the patient would be compromised. And doctors only care, really, about the best interest of the patient. But the government of the time, it's still the same government, we've changed the the, the guy in charge of the health department finally, um, said said that doctors were striking because they were being greedy, because it was about money, because they wanted more money. And the government have a very, very, very loud voice. If you're the government, you can go on Mar and Peston and the Today programme whenever you like. If you're a junior doctor, you're being a junior doctor for, you know, 100 hours a week. It's very difficult to get your, um, to get your, your voice heard. So I thought, if I could trick a publisher into <laughs> publishing my diaries, which, and it says, I mean, it says they're funny. That's sort of how it's pitched, and, you know... Most, if I'd have called the book a harrowing polemic about uh, the <laughs> NHS, I probably wouldn't be invited to do events uh, like this. Um, but most of the stuff I wrote down was funny, uh, because a lot of funny stuff happens. The nature of being a junior doctor means there's funny stuff as well as sad stuff, and there's high-octane stuff as well as the, the mundane stuff and the petty bureaucracies. But what I wanted to do was present some data... I didn't want to tell people what to think. It, by, by the nature of talking about the NHS, it's political, but I wanted it to be very lowercase p political. I just wanted people to understand what it means to be you know, one junior doctor so that next time it happens that the government you know, uh, take their acts to junior doctors, you, the, uh, the public, non-doctors, whatever non-doctors are called, patients, uh, can can weigh it up for yourselves rather than just hearing one side of the story. Um, and so that's why the, why the book um, came about. And, and it, I'm going to just take, read you some, uh, some entries that, uh, that I, th- I think you'll find particularly disgusting because um, <laughs> uh, that will allow me to talk about this, the various uh, grades uh, of being a doctor and hopefully talk around the subject of how it affects you as a, as a person. And... Uh, it's A-level results day today, isn't it? Down at, you've, got, you've got your sort of, uh, you've got your, whatever there are up here, ordinary wizarding levels. And, uh, uh, but, um, and so Twitter today was sort of full of, uh, full of people. And, and it reminded me that you make the decision to be a doctor ridiculously young. America does medicine almost completely wrong. It's the... It's a horrendous, dystopian version of what healthcare should look like. But the one thing, to my mind, they get totally right is medicine is pretty much a postgraduate degree. So you're, you're in your early 20s, you've got a bit of life experience, you've got some other degree, you take a look around you and think, do I now want to be a doctor? Whereas here, you decide when you choose your A-levels. Because obviously medical schools want you to have certain A-levels, so you choose that when you're 16, and 16 is a very bad age to decide to do anything. 
uh, let alone what you're going to have to do for, for your, the, the 40 years of your, of your working life. And I guess the, the book ends because, and my career in medicine ends, because I wasn't emotionally equipped for the job. At no point in the process do they check in any way that you're, you're up, up for the gig. They check, all they do is check that you've got um, your A-levels. And there's more to being a doctor than just being good at physics. Obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a, a communication profession, probably more than anything else. Um, if, uh, if, you, if you want to be a train driver, they'll put you through psychometric testing. If, you want, if you're in the States you want to be an astronaut, they'll put you through psychometric testing. If you want to go on Love Island, they'll, they'll do that. But if you want to be a doctor, they, 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 there's none of that. Um, and all they do is they check you've got the, the A-levels, and then to filter it down, rather than anything sensible, they check that you've got a certain number of, sort of extracurricular interests, which for some reason has always been um, the, the way they filter it down. So like, I, was, uh, I played the piano, and I played the saxophone, and I did like, uh, reviews for the school magazine. And apparently that's, that's a good way to tell if you're going to be a good doctor. Um, and if you, if you look at the Wikipedia entry of any famous doctor throughout history, it's always been the same. So here's one. He proved himself an accomplished rugby player in youth leagues. He excelled as a distance runner, and in his final year at school was vice-captain of the athletics team. And that's Harold Chipman, so it's, um, <laughs> it's potentially not a completely rock-solid system. Um, in my book, I, I don't talk a whole lot about uh, medical school uh, because I was mindful I'd have to write a sequel if this one did well. Uh, <laughs> but, um, so we'll gloss, gloss over that until next year. Um, um, so you're, you're spat out as, uh, as a house officer, now called foundation doctor, um, which is the, it's the first rung of the, of the ladder. It basically involves getting shouted at for 16 hours a day and being splashed with bodily fluids. Not even the fun kind. And um, <laughs> working out where the, where the level is. <laughs> it's below that. Uh, and it's, it's a very much in at the deep end uh, job being house officer. Um, so... There's, there's a hierarchy, and you're, 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 at the bottom, you're at the bottom step. And during the day, that means you're basically doing an administrative job. So you go on your ward round, your consultants and registrars and senior registrars make their pronouncements, and then you go and enact these things. Um, it's very time-consuming. Uh, so you know, it might take you, you know, six hours longer than your you know, intended working day, but that's what, that's what you do. And then at night... It's a completely different job and one that no one's trained you for. So at night, you're in charge of all of the patients in the hospital. <laughs> uh, which is fine, you might, you might think, because you're a doctor. But medical school doesn't teach you how to manage emergencies, really. It teaches you what, what symptoms and signs to look out for in a heart attack and you know, what exactly is going on with what exact blood vessel and what the changes look like on the ECG and what drugs to give. That's very, very different to the to the hands-on process. It's a hands-on practical job. Whether you're a doctor or a car mechanic, you have to do the practical things 
to learn how to do the practical things. And this is where you're doing it for the first time. Your registrar and SHO are down in A&E seeing people uh, who need to be admitted to the ward because they've, they've had some sort of emergency. They've had a, a stroke or an epileptic fit or whatever. You're seeing people up on the wards who are having emergencies, but they are much more difficult because they're already on the wards, which means they've always, already got something wrong with them. So you're ending up with this build-your-own-burger of symptoms on conditions, on diseases, and it's your person who's had a heart attack came in with pneumonia. And so, it's, and so it's a, it's a, you learn very quickly. Uh, and what should we start with? We'll start, we'll, get, we'll start gently on the 10th of September 2004. I noticed that every patient on the ward has a pulse of 60 beats per minute recorded in their chart, so I subtly inspect the healthcare assistant's measurement technique. He feels the patient pulse, looks at his watch, and meticulously counts the number of seconds per minute. (laughs) Trying to work out a 70-year-old lady's alcohol consumption to document in the notes, I've established that wine is her poison. I ask, how much wine do you drink per day, would you say? About three bottles on a good day. Okay. And on a bad day? On a bad day, I only manage one. (laughs) Putting the book together, I was extremely keen that junior doctors who read it would say, this is what my job is like. So they could pass it on to their friends and their family and say, this is a, a fair representation. For me, there was no point in, in doing it if it was just going to be a, a fictionalisation, if it was just going to be a, you know, a, a Holby City. Uh, it, ne- it needed to... If I'm saying, this is what it's like to be on the front line, it needed to be like that. And so, you know, I had loads and loads of diary entries. Most of them couldn't go in because... You know, they were just boring, did cesarean section number 412, and lots got cut out because I'd go to prison if I, you know, sort of broke those confidentialities. And, um, so, but my job in the main was choosing... I felt like I was at like a sound desk. So I was turning down the funny and getting the balance right against the sad and getting the, uh, and the, sort of the bureaucracy stuff and, and the revolting stuff. Um, so I don't, I don't want you to buy a copy of my book and not know that, that... I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't read your repulsive story. That's basically what I'm saying, because some of the job is, is a... Saw my first degloving injury. Okay. There's lots of footnotes in the, in the book, um, so I'll, I'll do your footnotes live. So, degloving is where the skin and associated blood vessels are torn from the underlying structures. Uh, like if a motorcyclist flies with their bike and their hands, drag along the ground and degloving. Say what you see. Patient WM is 18 and was out celebrating with friends after receiving his A-level results, three C's. <laughs> after chucking out time, he found himself dancing on the roof of a bus shelter, then decided to get back to ground level using a neighbouring lamppost as a fireman's pole. He jumped onto the lamppost and slid down koala bear style. He had misjudged the texture of the lamppost which provided more friction than he had allowed for. (laughs) 
He therefore presented to A&E with severe grazing to both hands and to complete degloving of his penis. <laughs> this is far and away the worst penis I have ever seen. <laughs> and I have seen a lot of penises. Worthy of a rosette. If only there was a place to pin it. A couple of urethra, co- couple of inches of urethra coated with a thin layer of bloody pulp, maybe two millimetres diameter in total. It brought to mind a remnant of spaghetti stuck to the bottom of the bowl by some tomato sauce. <laughs> the patient was upset. <laughs> this was made worse when he asked if the penis could be re-gloved. The consultant explained that the glove was spread evenly up eight foot of lamppost in Fulham. (laughs) 29th of July. I spend the entire night shift feeling like water is gushing into the hull of my boat and the only thing on hand to bail it out with is a Sylvanian family rabbit's contact lens. Everything I'm bleeped about takes at least 15 minutes to firefight, and I'm getting called about a new blaze every five minutes, so the sums don't quite add up. My SHO and registrar are tied up in a busy A&E, so I prioritise the sickest-sounding patients and manage the expectations of the nurses who call me about anything else. I'm really sorry, but I've got a load of patients who are much more urgent, I say. Realistically, it'll be about six hours... Some understand, and some react like I've just said, fuck off, I'm in the middle of an Ali McBeal box set binge. (laughs) I run from chest pain to sepsis to atrial fibrillation to acute asthma all night, like some kind of weird medical decathlon, and somehow everyone gets through it alive. At 8am, one of the night sisters bleeps me to tell me I did really well tonight, and she thinks I'm a good little doctor. I'm willing to overlook the fact that good little doctor sounds like I'm an Enid Blyton character (laughs) because I'm pretty sure it's the first time I've had anything approaching a compliment since I qualified. I don't really know what to say, but I stutter my thanks. In my confusion, I accidentally sign off with, Love you, bye. (laughs) It's partly out of exhaustion, partly my brain misfiring because my partner H is normally the only person who says nice things to me and partly because... In that moment, I genuinely loved her for saying that. And house officer becomes senior house officer. It's crucial to say that you're not senior. You're someone who's been a doctor for a year. It's, it's basically an automatic promotion after one year in the job, a bit like if you work at McDonald's and they put a star in your badge. But senior sounds good if someone's about to take a scalpel to your head. That will go good, senior. Um, and it's where, if you're staying in hospital medicine, you make the decision as to what specialty uh, you're going to go into. And this is, this is where I think I made my mistake. And I chose... I didn't th- think really about what the specialty would involve. And I chose um, obs and gynae, obstetrics and gynaecology. Brats and twats, it was known as. Probably parts and labour is better for a (laughs) posh Edinburgh audience, isn't it? Uh, uh, (laughs) And I was drawn to it because there's no more amazing specialty. What a privilege to be allowed to play that role in the lives of so many families. You literally end up with twice the number of patients you start with, (laughs) which is a very good batting average. (laughs) 
Um, but what I hadn't quite realized is that the height of the highs is set off by the, the depth of the lows. And all I'd really seen of it was being a, a medical student, and I'd, I'd seen how amazing it was, and I, I, was, I was drawn to that. I had a very charismatic registrar teaching me, and, um, who very slightly unhelpfully in retrospect explained that it's actually very easy on a practical level. So you have to learn how to do four things, basically, on labor ward. Caesarean section, we know that one, yeah. Uh, von Tuss extraction, which is the, the sort of mini hoover to sort of suck a baby out. Uh, forceps is salad tongs. This isn't, I mean, this is not an exaggeration. This is the, <laughs> literally the equipment involved. And the fourth thing is, is sewing it all up uh, afterwards. Uh, there's slightly more to it in that... Uh, the, the, the job is actually knowing when to do each of these tricks you've learned. <laughs> like, sort of, you know, we'll review the baby's heart trace in 50 minutes, half an hour, an hour whatever. Um, but, I mean, it boils down to, on a practical level, quite an easy job, and you can get quite good quite, quite quickly. So um, I, I became an obstetrician. And on the 19th of September 2005, I did my first Von Tuss delivery. I suddenly feel like an obstetrician. It's a pretty notional job title until you can, you know, actually extract a baby. My registrar, Lily, talks me through it gently, but I do it all myself, and it feels great. Congratulations. You did amazingly well there, says Lily. Thank you, I reply, then realise she's actually talking to the mother. <laughs> 25th of December, 2005, which will remember that date, because it's Christmas, isn't it? And... Um, Babies are as likely to be delivered on, on Christmas Day as on, you know, any other day. Uh, it's just, just how it works, really. Like Jesus, for example. And, uh, <laughs> and I, looked, I looked back through all of my diary entries, and of the seven Christmases where I was a doctor, I managed to spend one Christmas with my family. So it wasn't all bad. <laughs> 25th of December, 2005. Good news, bad news. Good news, it's Christmas morning. Bad news, I have to work on labour ward. Worse news, my phone goes off, it's my registrar. I didn't set my alarm, and now they're wondering where the hell I am. Even worse news, I'm asleep in my car, and it takes me a while to establish where I am or why. Good news, it seems I fell asleep after my shift last night, and I'm already at work in the hospital car park. <laughs> I leap out the car, grab a quick shower, and then I'm good to go, and only ten minutes late. I have eight missed calls from H, and a text saying, Merry Christmas, full stop, no kiss. <laughs> this year we're doing Christmas on my next day off, the 6th of January. <laughs> Just think how reduced the crackers will be by then. The, the only positive I could find. So, we know that doctors have a tough job and bad hours, but I think what doesn't... What people on the outside don't necessarily realise is the sort of the stuff that goes with it. So if it's five o'clock and your job says you're meant to go home at five o'clock, but someone starts bleeding to death, you stay and you sort them out. And you spend another three hours at work, and that's what you do. There's no choice there. there if that's a choice for you, you'd have never applied to go to medical school in the first place, so you stay and sort it out. And this is not a rare occurrence that you come home late. It's not a once-a-month thing. It's not even a once-a-week thing. It's a common thing. So you're always phoning someone, texting someone, saying, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to bail on drinks. I won't be able to come around for dinner. 
there's no slack in the system. There's no one who can come and, and take over. This is a system stretched to, you know, a gossamer thin level. And so these friends, they'll invite you, they'll text you the next time, invite you to dinner. The third time you've cancelled, you sort of fall off the list and your social circle contracts. And that's a, that's a sort of slow, insidious thing that I didn't, didn't even notice until it had happened. But it's, you, you, can see how, you can see how it does because your, your priority, your trump card, is always going to be keeping the people alive who you're being paid to to keep alive, um, which, is, which is fair enough, and that's the, that's the nature of the job. 21st of July, 2006. Bleep to the gynae ward at 5 a.m. to write a discharge summary. On my way out, I noticed the light is on in patient CR's side room, so I put my head in to check if everything's okay. I admitted her from A&E last week with the suspicion of an ovarian mass and tense ascites. Ascites is the build-up of fluids within the abdominal cavity, and it's always, almost always very bad news. I've been on nights since and not caught up with what's happened, she tells me. Suspicion of an ovarian mass has become a diagnosis of ovarian cancer, has become confirmation of widespread metastases, has become talk of a few months left. When I saw her in A&E, despite obvious suspicions, I didn't say the word cancer. I was taught that if you say the word evening passing, it doesn't matter what else you say, you've basically said cancer, cancer, cancer for half an hour as far as the patient's concerned. And not that you'd ever want a patient to have cancer, of course, but I really, really didn't want her to. Friendly, funny, chatty, despite the litres of fluid in her abdomen splinting her breathing. We were like two long-lost pals finding themselves next to each other at a bus stop and catching up on all her years apart. Her son has a place at medical school. Her daughter's at the same school my sister went to. She recognised my socks were Duchamp. I stuck in a drain to take off a fluid and admitted her to the ward for the day team to investigate. And now she's telling me what they found. She bursts into tears, and out come all the will-nevers, the crushing realisation that forever is just a word on the front of Valentine's cards. Her son will qualify from medical school. She won't be there. Her daughter will get married. She won't be able to help with a table plan or throw confetti. She will never meet her grandchildren. Her husband will never get over it. He doesn't even know how to work the thermostat. She laughs, so I laugh. I really don't know what to say. I want to lie and tell her everything's going to be fine, but we both know that it won't. I hug her. I've never hugged a patient before. In fact, I think I've only hugged a grand total of five people, and one of my parents isn't on that list, but (laughs) I don't know what else to do. We talk about boring practical things, rational concerns, irrational concerns, and I can see from her eyes that it's helping her. It suddenly strikes me I'm almost certainly the first person she's opened up to about this, the only one she's been totally honest with. It's a strange privilege, an honour I didn't ask for. The other thing I realise is that none of her many, many concerns are about herself. It's all about the kids, her husband, her sister, her friends. Maybe that's the definition of a good person. We had a patient in obstetrics a couple of months ago who was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer during pregnancy, and she was advised to deliver at 32 weeks so she could start treatment, but waited until 37 weeks to give her baby the absolute best possible chance. She died after a fortnight spent with her baby, Who knows whether starting treatment a month sooner would have made any difference? Probably not. 
And now I'm sitting with a woman who's asking me if she shouldn't have her ashes scattered on the Silly Isles. It's her favourite spot, but she doesn't want it to be a sad place for her family once she's gone. The undiluted selflessness of someone fully aware what her absence will do to those she leaves behind. My bleep goes off. It's the morning SHO asking for handover. I've spent two hours in this room, the longest I've ever spent with a patient who wasn't under anaesthetic. On the way home, I phoned my mum to tell her I love her. So, and that's a, that's a big part of why the, the job's difficult. They, they teach you in, in physics at school that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It's not, it's not equal, but it, it chips away. And just wish it's something that you, you get briefed about. The, you know, the, the nature of the job, but more bad things happen than, than good. When I started medical school in 1998 at Imperial College at the University of London, it was the first year they taught communication skills as a subject, and which feels mad saying it now, but it was, had to be brought in at some point, and it turns out it was then, and that was one of the earliest universities to do it. And we would have to go to our lectures on that, and I'll be on a surgical ward round, and I'll say to the consultant, I'm really sorry, I have to leave now to go over to the lecture theatre for communication skills. And these consultants would say, this is nonsense, you can't teach communication, you've either got it or you haven't, this sort of old-fashioned belief. And now, it's, it's, a, it's the cornerstone of medical teaching, and rightly, it's crucial. It's what being a doctor is. Medical schools now, the green shoots are showing that people are talking about... They're calling it resilience, which is the wrong term, I think, because it, that implies that something's your fault, I think. But whatever it's going to be called, looking after yourself, well-being, knowing that there's, there is evidence to how, of how to look after yourself. If a bad thing's happened, you know, we use evidence to treat someone's kidney disease. We should use the evidence that says taking a bit of time out is good and talking to people is good, and there's evidence for tea, there's evidence for meditation, there's evidence for religion, if that's your thing. You know, it's, it, that, that's, an, that's an important thing because... You know, when that happens to you when you're in your early 20s, it's, it, it's difficult. And, and that's one of the things I wanted, to, I wanted the book to, to, to tell people about, I guess. Another weird thing that people don't, uh, don't necessarily realise is that junior doctors rotate hospitals once a year. And this is a really good idea in theory, so that you can become the best possible version of yourself, learn from lots of different doctors in big hospitals and small hospitals, some that are experts in this, some are experts in that, and you become this sort of well-rounded, um, you know, become your own expert. And you're, you rotate once a year as a result uh, around what's called the deanery, which is, the, um, which is the, uh, the, you know, the, the academic area where you can be shuffled around. Um, problem is, so the deanery we're in at the moment is called Scotland, and you'll appreciate it's, it's very difficult to find a flat that's handy for all of Scotland. Um, so you find yourself once a year, unless you live in a vacuum, saying to your other half, do you mind if we move to Fife? Um, we need to move another 200 miles away again. And then maybe that'll happen once, but eventually it stops happening and relationships do fail because of the, the physical impossibility of, of, of just, being, just being moved somewhere. And doctors move uh, on the same day of the year, which is known as Black Wednesday. 
2nd of August 2006. It's Black Wednesday and I've started at St Mary's. It's an established fact that death rates go up on Black Wednesday. Knowing this really takes the pressure off, so I'm not trying very hard. <laughs> 9th of October. After a lengthy discussion with a patient's husband about how absolutely no condoms fit him, I establish he's pulling them right down over his balls. After a senior house officer and a couple of years of doing that, um, you reach registrar level, which is basically the halfway mark to being a consultant. It's um, a lot more responsibility. You, yeah, you're in charge of cesarean sections, various other things like that. Um, and a bit of a pay rise. And uh, I get to be called Mr. K rather than Dr. K, which made the previous decade of studying feel like a fucking waste of time. <laughs> I'm going to read you my most disgusting story. Just specifically to upset the front row. <laughs> it's something called... Well, I'm interviewed a lot about the, the, the book because it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's done what it's done. And, uh, and the NHS has had its birthday. And I'm asked a lot, oh, you know, is it true? Do these people stick these things in these places? And that's the reaction from, from non-medics. The reaction from medics is, that's nothing. Here's my, here's my <laughs> top ten mad things. But I'd be, I'd be doing you a disservice if I was talking about the book and I didn't mention any of these objects. So um, I think this is, uh, this is, this is my favourite. And this is from the, the 29th of February, 2008. Special occasions call for patients to insert special types of objects into their vaginas and rectum. Christmas in particular has rewarded me well with a stuck fairy, a swollen vulva from, mis from a mistletoe contact allergy, and vaginal burns from a patient stuffing a string of lights inside and turning them on. <laughs> Bringing new meaning to the phrase, I put the Christmas lights up myself. This is my first leap year working as a doctor, and the great British public have really pulled it out of the bag for me with a very, very specific injury. Patient JB decided to take advantage of tradition and proposed to her boyfriend, going to the expense of buying an engagement ring, the trouble of putting it inside a Kinder Surprise egg, and the imagination of inserting it vaginally. Her partner would discover it, retrieve it, and then she would go down on one knee. Equal parts unexpected, disgusting, and I suppose romantic. Unfortunately, which is a word that appears a lot in this book, unfortunately, he was unable to retrieve it as planned. It had rotated itself lengthwise, and no amount of sugarling from either of them would get this particular goose to lay its golden egg. Remarkably, she was so keen to maintain the surprise, she wouldn't tell him what she'd done or why, but eventually decided it was a hospital matter, so we met in cubicle three. It was a very easy delivery with a pair of forceps. She hadn't told me about the contents of the egg either at this point, so there was a moment of confusion for both me and the boyfriend when she asked him to open it. 
I gave him a pair of latex gloves, sandblasting the last trace of romance from the scenario. She popped the question, and he said yes. Presumably out of fear as to what a woman who does that with a kinder surprise would do to him if spurned. Which takes us to senior registrar, one click below consultant grade. And so that means uh, that uh, out, of, out of hours, so evenings, weekends and nights, I'll be the most senior person on the ground uh, um, in, in the hospital. Uh, again, massive pay rise. At this point, I earn so much, I can buy any sandwich without even looking at the price first. <laughs> 25th of June, 2009 down in A&E around 11pm to review a patient and thumbing through Twitter while I work up the strength. There's a big news story breaking, but so far only TMZ have reported it. Oh, Christ, I gasp. Michael Jackson's dead. One of the nurses sighs and stands up. Which cubicle? Twenty-fifth of August, two thousand and ten, an 85-year-old long-stay gynae cancer patient breaks our hearts on yesterday's ward round. She misses her late husband. Her children have barely visited since she's been in hospital, and she can't even have a usual whiskey nightcap in here. I decided to play Boy Scout and prescribe whiskey 50 mils nightly on her drug chart, and gave the house officer 20 quid to get a bottle from the supermarket to pass on to the nurses so they could fulfil the prescription on their drug round. This morning. The ward sister reports the patient declined her drink because, quote, Jack Daniels is fucking cat piss. <laughs> 2nd of December 2010. Spending my Sunday afternoon on Labour Ward with an excellent SHO. She asked me to review baby's heart tracing and I agree with her assessment the patient needs an urgent caesarean section for fetal distress. They're a lovely couple, recently married. It's their first baby and they understand the situation. The SHO asks if she can perform the caesarean while I assist, which is the standard way you train up. In theatre, the SHO goes through the layers, skin, fat, muscle, peritoneum one, peritoneum two, uterus. After the uterine incision, rather than amniotic fluid, blood comes out, a lot of blood. There's been an abruption, which means the placenta's come away. I stay calm and ask the SHO to deliver the baby. She says she can't, there's something in the way. I take over the operation, the placenta is in the way. The patient has an undiagnosed placenta previa. This should have been noticed on scan. She should never have been allowed to go into labour. I deliver the placenta, then deliver the baby. The baby is clearly dead. Paediatricians attempt resuscitation with no success. The patient's bleeding heavily from the uterus, one litre, two litres. My stitches have no effect, drugs have no effect. I call for the consultant to come in from home. The patient's now under general anaesthetic and receiving emergency blood transfusions. Her husband's been escorted out of theatre, blood loss, five litres. I try a brace suture, which are big stitches to compress the uterus like a pair of braces. 
No luck. I'm squeezing the uterus as hard as I can with both hands. It's the only thing that stops the bleeding. The consultant arrives, attempts another brave suture. It doesn't work. I can see the panic in her eyes. The anaesthetist is telling us he can't get fluid into the patient fast enough to replace what she's losing, and we're risking organ damage. The consultant calls another colleague. He's not on duty, but he's the most experienced surgeon either of us can think of. We take it in turn, squeezing the uterus until he arrives 20 minutes later. He performs a hysterectomy. The bleeding's finally under control, 12 litres. The patient goes to intensive care, and I'm warned to expect the worst. My consultant talks to the husband. I start to write up my operation notes, but instead just cry for an hour. That's the last diary entry that, that I made, and I must have read it out 300 times by now. It will particularly get easier. Everyone at the hospital was very nice to me, very kind to me, explained it wasn't my fault. I did the right Anyone at, at any level would have performed the same actions in that scenario and had the same eventual outcome. And the feeling is that you just have to somehow deal with it. But I didn't deal with it. In truth, probably couldn't deal with it. I, I wasn't convinced I wanted to be the kind of person who could just um, sort of compress these thoughts away and... and and push them down, and people said to, to make me feel, you know, better about it, it's one of these things that just happens. If you're the most senior obstetrician, every five or six years, you will have this kind of big disaster. It's nothing you've done wrong, it's part of the job. But I realised then that I couldn't deal with that ever happening to me ever again. And, uh, and so I, I quit medicine. And a bad day at work for me now is, you know, you don't laugh at my jokes, you don't buy the book afterwards. Stuff that literally doesn't matter at all. Uh, and it feels weird saying this because, you know, it's been printed out half a million times and I go around, you know, yabbering on about it. But at the time, I just didn't tell anyone what had happened other than the, the people who were in that, on, that, on that ward at the time, no one knew why I left medicine. And, like, my parents obviously knew I'd left medicine, but didn't know why I'd left until September of last year when they read, when the hardback of that book came out. My uh, new partner, James, um, my, my relationship during that book obviously uh, ended. Um, and... I say new partner, we're married, we've been you know, going out for the best part of a decade. Didn't know why I'd left medicine until two years ago, this same festival at the Fringe, when I was reading out from my diary entries for the first time. And that's not healthy. I get that. Now, that's on me. When the junior doctors were coming under fire, I realised something much more important. It's not healthy for the public. The public need to know what doctors and nurses and midwives and paramedics and pharmacists actually do. Every healthcare professional should be shouting out about the reality of their job so that next time the government lies that doctors are in it for the money for the wrong reasons, the public can say, of course they're not Jeremy, of course they're not Matt, of course they're not whoever comes next. Why would anyone in their right mind be in that job for anything other than the right reasons? Because 
I wouldn't wish that job on anyone. And I personally, I, I couldn't do it when, it when it actually came down to it. There was a guy called Roger Fisher, who I talk about at the end of the book, who was a professor of law at Harvard University. And he suggested back in the early 80s they should implant the American nuclear codes in the heart of a volunteer. And if the president wanted to push the button and kill hundreds of thousands of innocent people, then first of all, he himself would have to take a butcher's knife and dig it out of this volunteer's heart so he could see what death actually looks like firsthand, the implications of performing an abstract action, because no president, not even this guy, no president would do that if they had to do this first. And similarly, I think that every health secretary should have to do shifts with, with, with junior doctors, and they'll say that it happens, but it doesn't. So what happens is the chief executive takes a couple of ministers around the newest ward that's been polished up so it's shiny like a laboratory and there's a couple of the least ill-looking patients in there. That is not what being a junior doctor looks like because being a junior doctor means palliating a cancer patient in their final days and being a junior doctor means amputating the limb of a teenage trauma victim. Being a junior doctor means delivering a dead baby. So I defy any human being with a beating heart to know what the job actually is and then question the doctor's motivation. They'd be fucking applauding them, and they'd be proud of them, and they'd be humbled by them, and they'd be eternally grateful for everything they do. So comes back to the thing I was saying at the start. I'm just providing you with a bit more data so that next time when it happens and you're hearing the, all the, the governments making their noise, you've got, you've got a bit of the other side of the, the story. And you, to support junior doctors, all you need to do, you don't need to wear a badge on your jacket, you don't need to honk your horn past a picket line, you just need to be part of the conversation. And when someone says, oh, doctors, they're just, they're just moaning, aren't they? they're just in it for the money, then you, know, you, you, can, you can join in the conversation if you want to. I suspect um, this is now the point where I have to uh, do the questiony bit, and I realise I've gone slightly off-piste and uh, <laughs> made it moderately difficult to segue into, into <laughs> questions, but I'm, 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 glad I've, I'm glad I've said that, so that. Thanks very much, gentlemen in the grey shirt. Do I? Well, I'll repeat the questions. It's fine. Don't. Yeah, you're, I mean, it's, I mean you, can, you, can, you can do your sprinting. It's good. Okay. So the question, the, the question was, do I worry that I might be putting medical students off doing medicine? No. Uh, I think that my... And, this book should be a set text for people who want to do medicine. I say that not just for financial reasons. Um, <laughs> but if that's going to put you off, you shouldn't be doing medicine. I think it's a job you need to go into with both your eyes wide open. But and the crucial thing is, medicine is a thousand different subjects. You can be an epidemiologist, you can be a public health expert, you can be an occupational physician, as well as right on the other side, at the, at the sharp end, in the A&E side, in the... Uh, obstetric side. I talk about the sine wave. There are jobs with flatter sine waves. I suspect if I knew more about how bad bad got, I'd have chosen a flatter sine wave. You know, be a dermatologist. No, <laughs> we called it derma holiday uh, <laughs> when I was at medical school. But you know, you're never going to have the, the thrilling highs that make you think, oh, thank God I'm here. Um, but at the same time, 
But uh, there's no branch of medicine where you know the bad things don't happen. If you're a dermatologist, you can send someone home and say that's a you know it's just a, a mole, and you've sent them home with a basal cell carcinoma, you've killed your patient. But it's just, it, I think people need to think about a that side of things, and b we need to be open and honest about the fact that doctors are human beings. This is old-fashioned militaristic attitude that we're bloody doctors and we bloody get on with and a stiff upper lip and a stiff drink. And that's not helpful. You're not superhuman. You're just the teenager who ticked something on a, on a UCAS form. And it's crucial that people know it. It's crucial that people know it when they're going into medical school. It's crucial that as doctors you look after your colleagues, as consultants you look after your juniors. You, those of you who aren't doctors, look after your, your friends. And Just by show of hands... How many of you either work for the NHS or you've got a friend or a neighbour or a relative who's, who's something in the NHS? That's, that's a lot of you. And no one who works in the NHS has an easy job. And they all need someone to come back to um, who can ask the question, how was your day? And eventually, if you ask it enough, you know, they can open up to because that will stop doctors burning out. There's a real crisis in recruitment and retention and, and part of the problem is is this side of things. So, um, yes, it, it, that book could put people off doing medicine, but uh, I, I guess a lot of messages from, from medical students saying it's strengthened their resolve, and it's, and I mean, it's, it's written out, it's too late. Jeannie's out. <laughs> uh, gentleman there, and then we'll come to that. What happened with the guy's degloved penis? penis? That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> They will have reconstructed something that, uh, you, know, we, you know, in a dark enough room, if you squint, <laughs> would look a bit like a penis. Um, but if you think of the two functions a penis uh, might have, it's sort of mostly excretion. Uh, and also it'd be like, a, like, you know, they're like wine boxes where there's like a spigot tap, so one of those at the end. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, a gentleman at the back. Very kind. I'm wondering what kind of reaction you've had from your ex-colleagues, the BNA, or some random person called Jeremy. <laughs> so what, what feedback have I had? It's, it's interesting being an author in, uh, in 2018, because everyone can, can get in touch with you. I presume, uh, you know, sort of 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was involved writing to a publisher and never hearing back. Now, you know, I can be emailed, I can, you know, message on a Facebook group or... Uh, on the, the Facebook page or Twitter and whatever, messages through a website. I, so I get, it's, it's somewhere between 50 and 100 messages a day. Um, and a lot of them are from doctors. And almost all are saying, this is a good thing and thank you. And this, this is something that I can show people to say, this is what my, my job is like. I've had a lot of very distressing messages, a lot of the time from people saying, this is the first time I've told anyone this, but. And everyone has got... I mean, there will be doctors in the room, I won't embarrass you by asking who you are, but when I read that last story, every doctor in the room will have remembered their version of that, because we've all got them. And these are, these are people who've often retired, people who've been in the game for a very long time, saying, that some, I'm a sort of become an, an agony aunt, but 
I'm hopefully teaching people it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to say these things. It's okay to acknowledge that you are just a human being who can make mistakes, who can get sick, who can get sad. Um, so that, that's a lot of what, my, of what my correspondence is like from doctors. I've had a small amount of hate, uh, which I think is par for the, the course, if, you're, uh, you know, if you put yourself out there. And the majority of the hate has been from doctors. It's only been a dozen messages or so, but it's generally saying, man up, histrionic. And I think that, that doesn't put me off, because I think that just exemplifies that that is a problem amongst a certain, certain type of doctor. Have I had any feedback from Jeremy Hunt? Yes. Um, we do, you know, after, after any event like this, and I, you know, I pootle around doing these events, there'll be a signing, and uh, people often generously say, well, you know, would you mind also signing one for... And I had, as soon as the book came out, a couple of dozen people say, would you mind also signing one for Jeremy Hunt? Which I did uh, g- gladly. Uh, <laughs> And then eventually, a message came through, this time to the publisher, from, from Jeremy Hunt, saying, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, if you come and meet me, will people stop sending me this fucking book? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and, I, and, I, and I, I did meet him. Um, uh, I realise I'm, ta- I'm doing long answers to questions, so I'm only going to manage a few, but um, uh, they've been good questions, thank you. Um, I, so I met him, went to Richmond House at the Department of Health, and he had about a 40-minute chat, and he started off very oily and political, and he's got great answers. He's a very clever man, very, very clever, and he had, he had all the right answers. But I had so many questions I wanted to ask him. I had, a, you know, eight years' worth of questions. Um, and I, was, I kept asking them, and eventually he, he snapped which I wasn't expecting. He was like, what is this? This is an interrogation. This is an interview. I thought I was inviting you in for a nice chat. So I was like, well, I never agreed to the nice chat. Um, and then from the rest of it, it was like, like when you're in trouble with your other half and, you know, all you get back in reply is, yes, no, yes, no. And eventually a sort of an aide opened the door and was like, uh, uh, Mr. Hunter, <laughs> he'd somehow signalled to, you know, to be rescued. <laughs> and, uh, and there was a very bad atmosphere. You, you don't like having this sort of grotty atmosphere. So I'd, I said, I'm really sorry if I came across nicer on paper than I do in real life. And he said, oh, no, I think you've been quite consistent. (laughs) (laughs) Next up, gentleman at the back. Yeah. Yes. So the question was about this awful case of uh, Dr. Hadiza Bawagaba. And for those of you who didn't, didn't see it, it was an absolute tragedy. A young boy called uh, Jack Adcock died and a, a doctor was hung out to dry. This was a doctor who had only just started in the job, who was carrying multiple bleeps, doing multiple people's jobs, was stretched well beyond what could be expected of, of any individual and on one level failed the patient because this patient tragically died but on the other hand was only put in a position she was unable to do her job because there was absolute inadequate resourcing there was it was an unsafe situation and 
the response was not to say, this must never happen again, we can never have an understaffed ward. It was to say, this doctor... And I think there was sexism involved, and I think there was racism involved. I strongly suspect if it was someone who looked and sounded like me, it wouldn't have resulted with the GMC trying to strike them off and succeeding in striking them off. And I think the fact that the Court of Appeal has shown that this was unfair and and making an awful tragedy... Worse. Um, I mean, it was, it was very. This doctor had had written had written things down to reflect on what had happened, as you're told to do, and which is meant to be private and confidential. And these were produced in in court as evidence as evidence against her. It was the GMC who regulate doctors uh, was uh, handled this phenomenally badly. And something needs to change about the GMC, whether that involves all the professional regulators being, being merged together as one. Or it, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm way out of my lane here. But uh, it involves the GMC, you know, being uh, someone having a big, proper look at them and an understanding that there must be minimum safe staffing levels for a, for a hospital. And I think, that, I think that's an important thing. I think we've got time for one last question, so it needs to really tie up everything I've talked about today <laughs> and hopefully be sort of amusing as well. Your prescription for the NHS. My prescription for the NHS, okay. So, the NHS is 70. How much older will the NHS live? It comes down to money, and it just does come down to money. When I left medicine, no one left medicine. I was this glitch in the matrix. And now I can't look on social media without seeing brilliant doctors who are, who are leaving the profession. It's a, it's a profession in, in crisis. It's a very, it's a very dif- different place. And what's changed in the last 10 years? Health tourism. That's not the answer. They, they will tell you health tourism is this great big thing. It's not. A third of 1% of the NHS budget goes on what so-called health tourism. You could, fix, you could get rid of all of that. It wouldn't make any difference. New expensive medicines. Yes, but not compared to 10 years ago. Compared to Nye Bevan, yes. But there's not much of that. What else do people say? The population's getting older. Yes, but how much older, you know, what's changed in life expectancy in the last decade? A fortnight? I mean, <laughs> the thing that's changed is money. Historically, the NHS had a, what's known as health inflation, the amount it costs year on year on year to provide the same service, Treadwater. Health inflation was about 3%. It got 3% more in real terms. Over the last eight years, it got 1%. Independent think tanks of all political colours have said it now needs four. It got less than four in this Brexit dividend. Mark my words, Brexit is a disaster for the NHS. Whatever you, whatever you think about Brexit for all sorts of other reasons, Brexit is a disaster for the NHS in terms of the people who work there. A lot of them come from Europe, and a lot of them are going back to Europe. It's not helping. It needs more money. It's had eight years of underfunding. It is fit for purpose. It, of course, there are a million different efficiencies that can be, you know, different things you can do to, to help it. But without 
properly investing, then it can't function. So what we need to do as a country is have a big grown-up discussion. The discussion goes like this. What do we want the NHS to provide and how do we want to pay for it? If we want the NHS to provide everything, unrationed and not sort of knocking the corners off and provide us, and I really hope that's what we want to do, then I think the NHS you know, can be funded. We're a rich country. We can afford this. It's malicious when they say we can't afford it. We can. We can afford to spend 200 billion quid on you know, exploding submarines, and we can spend a billion quid on bribing the DUP, and we can spend however much it is, 20 billion quid, making it 50 minutes to go to Birmingham from London, 50 minutes far. You know, it's that, that's, we can afford this. We're the sixth richest country in the world. We can afford to do it if we want. Or we say we're paying enough. We don't want to do it, and then we work out where the shortfall comes and who pays for it. So I hope, I hope that we choose the former. I'm not convinced we will, but at the moment it's the most marvellous institution. I'm very proud to have worked for it uh, when I did, and I'm very proud to be uh, still banging the gong for junior doctors, and I'm very grateful and humbled that so many of you have come out today to hear me think, talking about it. So thank you very much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.